you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 4, and we will begin uh, looking in verses verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Jumping back into our study in the book of Acts, I'm excited to get into it, and um, boy, we jump back in with a very interesting story here uh, with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, if the Gospels tell us what Jesus began to do and teach, which is how it's described here in the book of Acts, then the, the book of Acts helps us to see all that he continued to do through his followers by the power of the Spirit that was sent to live in and work through us as individuals and as a church. Jesus is continuing to work. He's simply working through his Spirit now in this age and through the church uh, the Gospels, when we read them, they culminate, obviously, in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, all of which um, attest to the truth, Peter tells us, that um, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, that he is the King and that he is the Savior of the world. And if that's not enough, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and his ascension opened the door for even more amazing things to happen, these greater works. Um, These acts of Jesus were and they are the source, they're the fountainhead of this great waterfall of world-changing, God-glorifying power that we see taking shape in the book of Acts and that we are a part of as the church of God in Christ. Another way that you might think about this, given our recent study in in John uh, 13 and 14, is that the book of Acts is the realization of what Jesus was talking about in John 13 through 17 that is continuing now even in this age. So when we open the book of Acts and find Jesus ascending to a place of power where he's given the Holy Spirit, he then takes that spirit that the Father gives him and pours it out on all the true followers of Jesus young and old, men and women, and the Spirit then empowers God's people for the task that he's given them of preaching the gospel to all nations. So these initial chapters of the book of Acts, as we've seen, paint this wonderful picture of the unity, of the power, of the the boldness, the growth, the love of this early church. But remember that the, the book of Acts isn't just a report of historical information so that we can pass some sort of multiple choice test about what was going on and who was there. Um, it's not, all, it's not a, a fairy tale either that would say we can never be like that, that we could never know the power that, that the early church knew. God's word always gives us information, but it gives us information that is intended to bring transformation in our lives. The book of Acts is not something that we're supposed to look at and say, we'll never know the power of the Spirit in that same way. But rather, I think that Luke, the author, is writing to Theophilus in particular, but also to all who love God. And he's urging us, as we said right at the very beginning, to join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding, Spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. We're invited to join in on what God is doing in the world. But as Luke paints this beautiful picture of what the church is, he also doesn't want us to have a false understanding of how the good word of Jesus is going to spread in the world. Because this movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the 
earth is happening in this fallen world where we all live. And the good word of Jesus goes against the powers of our flesh. It goes against the desires of the world. It goes against the will of our enemy, Satan, which means that if we're going to be a part of this spread of the gospel, then opposition is inevitable. It's not going to be something where there are no speed bumps along the way, where there are no roadblocks, where there are no bridges that are actually completely out and landslides and difficulty on the task of taking the gospel to all nations. We saw this right away. Chapters 3 and 4, opposition from outside the church threatens the spread of the gospel of Jesus as the religious leaders are taking are, are seeking to quiet the apostles. They persecute them. They threaten them. But then we watched as Peter and John led the church in overcoming this opposition, and they continued to boldly proclaim the gospel. We see the church praying together, and the place where they're at is shaken because no earthly power can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of his gospel. That was an opposition from outside, though. And sadly, opposition doesn't always come from outside the church. Sometimes opposition to the work of God can rise within the church itself. We see this even with Judas within the twelve. One of the twelve closest followers of Jesus is the one who betrays him. And as with Judas... In this account in chapter 5, it's at least in part due to the love of money that this internal attack happens in Acts 4.32 through 5.11. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But as we will see, I I don't think that the, the love of money is the only root of the sin that would divide the church that we find here in Acts 5. Pride, selfishness, hypocrisy, these are also feeding this this weed that is going to threaten to choke out the life of the church. And so I would say to us as brothers and sisters in Christ that the seeds of division, sadly, are right here in our midst, in our very hearts. We all pose a threat to the unity and the power of and the mission of God's church. Because while God's Spirit truly is at work in all who are His children, we also have these sinful desires that are bent on deception. They're bent on hypocrisy, on play-acting, on on lying, on wanting to look good and put together and more devoted than we are. And we really want to look like that when we come to church. And so these verses are going to teach us that as God's people... We must continually seek total devotion to and transparent honesty with God and with one another. That's our big idea. I'll say it a few more times. As God's people, we must continually seek, continually pursue, continually go after. We must continually seek two things, total devotion to and transparent honesty with God and one another. As God's people, we must continually seek total devotion to and transparent honesty with God and one another. And we can't grow weary in this pursuit because, as we will see, there is great danger in failing to pursue these things. If we as God's people do not deal with the deception among us and in us, it can derail the gospel work that is happening in and through our church. It will remove our power. It will destroy us. 
And so as God's people, we must continually seek total devotion to and transparent honesty with God and with one another. With that in mind, let's read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Verse 31 of chapter 4 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the number, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. As God's people, we must continually seek total devotion to and transparent honesty with God and with one another. When we look at this passage, the part that stands out to us is obviously chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, But before we meet the snakes in the garden, we have a picture of Eden. And the Eden of the early church is described for us in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. So we'll think about this in two parts. We'll call this first part of chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, the church's total devotion and transparent honesty. That's what's going on here. They are totally devoted to one another and to God, and they are transparently honest with one another. So this is the church's total devotion and transparent honesty. These verses remind us of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 
47, where the early church is described in their devotion to one another and to, to Christ. Luke has a number of these summary statements throughout the book. This is just the second one. And this one emphasizes a number of things that the community of Jesus were marked by in particular in this moment. And not just some members of the community, but Luke emphasizes that it was everyone. Everyone which could be 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 followers of Jesus within the city of Jerusalem at this point. And in, in one way or another, all of these things are said to be exhibited by the followers of Jesus. I want to name four of those things that I see in this these, these verses that, that are the marks of this church and that we would long to be the marks of our church. The first is unity of heart and soul. Unity of heart and soul. It says there in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed. Again, that emphasis, everyone, the full number of those who believed, they're described as being of one heart and one soul. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Who would you say that you are united together with as one heart and one soul? I mean, I'd say that about my wife. But here, this is the whole community is is of one heart and one soul. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in the church had the same likes and dislikes, that they had the same favorite restaurant or that they like the same kind of music or something like that. That's not the kind of unity here. But rather, it's there's a deep unity related to their devotion to Jesus, to, to the spread of the apostles' teaching, to their love for one another. They're devoted to one another, and they're devoted to Christ, and that unifies them. We're told earlier that this devotion and this unity meant that they were having meals together from house to house. They were devoted to praying with and for one another. Even in the midst of opposition, they were they were knit together through this common faith and through their devotion to Jesus. And so they were of one heart and one soul. And all of this led, I think, to the second characteristic. So the first is unity of heart and soul, but the second is a commonality of money and possessions. Commonality of money and possessions. We're told that at the end, second part of verse 32, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Another way to say that, none of the things that belonged to him belonged to him. No one said, this belongs to me. Jesus tells us that, that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And so where we invest our money and our possessions reveals what we value most. And here we find that the unity of the, of the early believers extended all the way to their money, and not just their money, but their possessions as well. They had everything in common. They lived in such a way that said to one another, my house is your house. My money is your money. My food is your food. Everything is, is laid out on the table. Everything is available to everyone else. It's In our culture, it's as if, you know, my tool shed is open and you can come over to my house and borrow my lawnmower and my tools anytime you want. Just show up. What's mine is yours. We're going to gather a little bit later and we're going to share a meal. And all of us are going to put some food on the table that we have brought for everyone to share. And some are going to bring a little bit more. And some are going to bring a little bit less. And some may bring absolutely nothing. But everything that's on that table is open to everyone. 
because everything is is laid out on the table. That's kind of the nature of a potluck, right? And as a church, our our unity and our devotion and our commonality of possessions extends beyond a, a casserole at potluck, right? As we grow to have one heart and one soul rooted in our common faith in Jesus, our money, our possessions, they become one. We've become generous because Jesus has been so generous to us. It sounds like marriage. It sounds like where two people come together with two sets of possessions and two bank accounts and everything is combined. All of these things that were once separated are now shared. Andrew and I were very young when we were married. We were both 21. But whatever little we had became ours together. Whatever I had was hers, which wasn't much. And whatever she had was was mine. Uh, my dad bought us a car for um, our wedding. And the car was in my name. But it wasn't my car anymore once we got married. It was our car. Uh, we quickly pulled all of our money because we were giving ourselves completely to one another in love and in trust. And that meant all our money is together. We were of one heart and one soul. And so therefore our money and our possessions were together too, even though all of it fit in like a minivan, but it was ours and that was ours together. And that's sort of what's going on here in, in the same way. The early church shared everything so deeply and completely that they, it was all on the table, and so much so that they started selling houses. Can you imagine this? They started selling houses and land that they owned so that the money could be given to the church to help those people that were in need. So this, this commonality of money and possessions was sacrificial, and it showed that the community of God's people was where their hope was. They didn't hold things back just in case this whole Jesus thing didn't work out. They gave everything to it. They sold Land. Think about the significance of that, especially within a Jewish mindset. Land that probably had been passed down to them. Land that may have represented their stake in the promised land. And now that they have found Jesus, they sell that land so that they can have money to bless others, especially the poor. One example of this that stood out was of a man named Joseph, who was such an encouragement to the early church that he... He got a nickname from everyone. Everyone called him Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. That wasn't his given name, but he was just such an encourager that he got the name son of encouragement. And Barnabas sold some land, probably from his hometown in Cyprus, and he took every bit of money that he got from that and he gave it to the church. He saw this land not as his hope, not as his personal nest egg to fall back on someday, but he saw it as an opportunity to bless his fellow believers, a way to meet the needs of those who were a part of his family. Now, this isn't Christian communism, okay? So don't get nervous. And I don't think it's Christian communism in large part because it's not forced. No one is being told that they have to do this. We're going to see later. Peter makes sure that Ananias knows that the land that he, that he and Sapphira sold was was theirs. It was yours in the beginning, he said. And when you sold it, all that money was yours. No one was telling you you had to sell it. And no one was telling you that when you sold it, you had to give every bit of it. No one was forced to give. And that's true for God's people. I hope you don't feel forced to give. It's not an obligation. 
Some people make a tithe, an obligation. And a tithe can be a good standard, that 10% standard, but it's not a requirement for God's people. In fact, it would seem here that the tithe is just the beginning. Were they giving 10%? They were giving 100%. Not just their money, they were giving everything that they had. Everything was held in common. Giving was not relegated simply to what was in their purses or their wallets, but it was also what was in their pantry and in their hall closet. Everything was held in common. Everything belonged to everybody else. And the result was that this new community of Jesus followers accomplished what God's people were supposed to accomplish through observing the sabbatical year and the law. We read about that in Deuteronomy 15. Did you notice that? That if possessions were correctly understood and rightly shared under the law, then there would be no needy person among their community. And here, did you notice that same phrase in verse 34? There was not a needy person among them. Here, it's that same phrase. And because God's people gave sacrificially and joyfully and completely, every need in the community was met. This doesn't mean that there were no poor in Jerusalem, but it does mean that amongst those who were a part of the committed community of Jesus, nobody had any need. I certainly think the generosity overflowed outside of their community, even as it should within our own community. But in a community of believers, if people are sacrificially giving of everything that they have, then there will be no need among us is what is represented here. When we understand the radical generosity of God in Christ, who became poor so that we might become rich in forgiveness and blessing, then we are generous to all. And we're generous especially to our fellow believers. So there's a commonality of money and possessions. And all of this money finds itself placed at the apostles' feet. So the third thing that I I notice here is the authority and the integrity of the apostles. That this is what, this marks this early church, is the authority and the integrity of the apostles. Or you might just say, of the leaders. Verse 33 reminds us that this was not some communal living program, but that its core, at its core was the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. It was with great power, verse 33 says, that the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they didn't put off the preaching of the gospel once they started getting this communal living thing going on. No, that was still the core. And if our unity is built just around common finances, that's not going to last. But if it's built around a common faith, around the belief that forgiveness of sins and hope for eternity are found when we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus for salvation, then all that financial stuff flows out of that. If our unity is built around this common mission for the glory of God, seen in the proclamation of the gospel to all people and all nations, if we're built around that common faith, then we'll give everything to see that accomplished. So the apostles led in keeping the truths about Jesus before the people, but they're also obviously men that are filled with integrity. Such that no one took any issue with placing large amounts of money at their feet for them to do whatever they wanted to with. There probably wasn't much sophisticated accounting going on in the early church, I don't imagine. But they trusted these apostles. They trusted these men. 
to, to use the, the funds rightly. And if we would have that kind of unity here, then we have to trust our leaders to rightly handle the money that's given to the church. I say that as one of the leaders of this church, many churches and many pastors in particular have imploded because of a lack of integrity in the realm of finances. And so while it takes a little bit more time and sometimes it makes stuff a little bit more difficult, we want our financial dealings as a church to be completely transparent and filled with integrity so that everyone knows exactly what's going on. We want to be careful with how we spend our money and who we give our money to. We want to have rules about who can write checks and how much benevolence can be given out at one time and when the whole church needs to be involved and when the elders can make that decision. Why? Because if the church can't trust the leadership to deal with the money with integrity, then you're not going to give money to the church to do the work of the ministry. If you give money to the church to do the work of the ministry and it doesn't go to that, then you will stop giving. And so the apostles were centered on the gospel and they were centered, they were men of integrity such that the church willingly and freely gave because they knew that the money would be used in a way that honored the gospel. We know this. If someone calls and asks you for money, you ask a lot of questions before you write a check or give them your credit card number because you want to know where that money is going. What percentage of this is going to go to what you're telling me it's going to go to? That's important. And it should be no different with the church. The leaders must be trusted. Trusted to be filled with integrity with how they're using this money, but also trusted to keep the gospel, to keep the testimony of the resurrection central, and that that's what drives how we use our finances. Our financial stability and generosity as a church, I say that 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 exists. We are financially stable, and we are a generous church, That is a gift of God's grace, but it also flows from a trust in the integrity of the leaders, not just me, but the elders as a group. And also that we have transparency and checks and balances in the way that we do things. And that also that you together, that we are focused on the spread of the gospel to all people. That's what we are using the money for. And I hope that we never lose sight of that because that's, what's going to make us a generous church. There's, there's, Really practical things involved in this. All of these things combined so that the church is marked finally by great grace. Verse 33 says, great grace was upon them all. So simple, but the church was filled with grace, with love, patience, mercy, as God's people gathered together. As I thought about that, I thought Grace Fellowship Church. May, may God make us a place that's worthy of our name. That we are a place of unity of heart and soul. A place that's marked by generosity, by integrity, and by grace in all that we do. So that we can, as we say, we want to bring grace to our city and to one another. Well, it's into the the beauty of this unity, this commonality, this integrity, this grace that's in the early church that a threat comes and it rises from within. So just imagine this, this beautiful unity and commonality and integrity that's there in the church. 
And then in contrast, we have this story of Ananias and Sapphira. So we'll call this second part of verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, the deception that threatens from within. The deception that threatens from within. The account of, of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is fairly straightforward, and it's something that we're, many of us are pretty familiar with. It's said in contrast not only to this broader picture of the church, but in particular to the, to the example of Barnabas. Um, who was a man who did this rightly. Um, so we find this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they live within the church, they have some property, they sell this property, and then they bring part of the property, or part of, part of the profit from the sale of that property to the apostles' feet. But when they lay it there, they, they represent it, they, they say that this is the total amount of the sale, and it was not. Um, this deed was not an afterthought um, or a plot only of one of them, and the other person didn't know about it, but rather we're told that it was a joint and premeditated effort at deceiving the church for their own personal glorification. And in response, Peter, as God's mouthpiece, exposes that hypocrisy, and then God himself strikes both of them dead within three hours of each other. Can you imagine? Ananias and Sapphira represent for us the exact opposite of what the church has just been praised for. So the church is marked by unity of heart and soul. But in verse 3, Satan fills Ananias' heart and seeks to bring division into the community. Satan knows that filling the church with hypocrisy and selfishness is one way to destroy it. And that's how he seeks to use Ananias. The community, we said, had been marked by a unity that extended to their money and possessions being freely and generously given. But Ananias and Sapphira are filled with selfishness and greed, and they hold on to their money. We said that we watched as the apostles acted with authority and with integrity, but this couple seeks their own autonomy. They they want to have personal power. They're unwilling to be transparent and filled with integrity. And so they're marked by dishonesty and a lack of integrity. And so the re- result is that instead of grace being on all, death comes in to God's people. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira has been compared to that of Achan in the story of the book of Joshua. Let me remind you of the details. You remember that Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And the first battle is the battle of Jericho, which God fights for them. They walk around and the walls fall down. So the walls fall down and Israel comes in and they're supposed to destroy everything. And everyone does exactly what God says, except for one guy named Achan, who takes some clothes and some money and buries it under his tent. And so at the next battle, when they go to conquer Ai, or I, or however you're supposed to pronounce it, um, when they go, they are defeated. It should have been simple. It should have been easy. But they're defeated because God says you did not obey the command. And so they draw lots, and they find that um, Achan had taken this money. And in fact, the same word is used um, in the Greek Septuagint. It's the only other place it's used In the Old Testament, this idea of keeping back money that Ananias and Sapphira did, it's the same word for what Achan did. He kept 
things that he was not supposed to. And so God deals swiftly with this situation, and Achan is killed. He is stoned by the community. The danger of covetousness, the danger of hypocrisy, is that they will derail God's work, just as they almost derailed the conquest of the land in Joshua, and just as they threatened to do here in Acts. They threatened to do it in the church, and they can do it in our church too. Hypocrisy and deception will derail God's work. As we think about Ananias and Sapphira, I want to ask three questions. Um, Three questions that I probably won't be able to answer fully um, and won't be able to apply fully. And so I'm thankful we have potluck and prayer afterwards and we'll continue to process these, these things. Here's the three questions I want to ask. What was their sin? What specifically did Ananias and Sapphira do that was that was wrong? What was their sin? Secondly, why was their punishment so severe? And third, how did this affect the early church? And in asking that question, we're we're thinking about how it can instruct us as well. So the first question is, what was their sin? I think this is the most difficult question to answer, and I think it's the key question to answer. So my first thought is, did it specifically have to do with money? Was it covetousness? Was it greed? And I think in part it was. There was some form of greed and love of money happening. Uh, They may have wanted some of the funds so that they could fall back on them later on, meaning maybe they didn't trust um, giving all of their money to the church, but rather they wanted to have a little bit for themselves. Uh, Maybe they wanted some finances so they could buy some things for themselves. But whatever the reason, they wanted to keep some of the money that they had made. Uh, So there was greed involved. But we also know that that Peter says that they had every right to keep that money. They were allowed to do that. He told them that. No one was forcing them to give all or even any of it. So greed is there, but I don't think it's it's everything that's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. So what about maybe it's a lack of devotion to the people of God. They're not fully committed. They're unwilling to be fully committed to God's people. I think that's part of it as well. It would seem that they weren't ready to fully invest in the community. They they wanted a little bit for themselves as kind of this nest egg. They're, they're hedging their bets on this group of Jesus followers. And they want to keep a little bit of cash on hand just in case this whole thing doesn't work out in the end. Or maybe they're going to change their minds and they don't want to have to, you know, ask for their money back or something like that. So maybe that's part of it. And, and those are good questions for us, I think, to ask as we think about our own hearts. How has the gospel changed the way that I think about money and possessions? Would I be willing, like this early church, to sell what I have and to give to the church or the the cause of the ministry? Also, am I completely devoted to God's people to serve them without reservation? Is everything on the table, as it were? Or am I hedging my bets like Ananias and Sapphira? Then as we ask some of those questions, I think we get to the heart of what was going on here, that the sin uh, that they were committing and the sin that, that can so often arise in our hearts is that it's, it's greed, yes, but above greed and, uh, and above a lack of devotion, the heart of their sin seems to be deception. 
That's one word for it. I'll give you some more. Deception. It's a deceiving of God and his people. It's hypocrisy. I say that because I think that's what Peter identifies as the sin. He says that they lied to the Holy Spirit and that they conspired to test the Holy Spirit. When I saw that, that you've agreed together to test it, to test the Holy Spirit. I thought about Ananias and Sapphira before this event. And I don't imagine Ananias and Sapphira coming together and saying, here's an idea, let's test the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's really what they, in their minds, thought that they were going to do. Um, Rather, they conspired to lie to and to test God's people, to test the church. But what we find here then is that so intricately connected is God to his people that if you're going to try to deceive God's people, It's like you're trying to deceive God. When we lie to God's people, we lie to God. When we practice hypocrisy, we are hypocrites before God. We might ask what they really wanted that that pushed them into this deception, and it would seem that they wanted the, the praise of other people. They wanted to be like Barnabas. They wanted a nickname. Barnabas, Joseph, was so great that everyone gave him a nickname. We want a nickname. Maybe if we give everything, everyone will think that we're great. John Stott kind of summarizes it like this. He said, The apostles' complaint was not that they lacked honesty, bringing only part of the sale price, but that they lacked integrity, bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They were not so much misers as thieves, and above all, liars. This is key. They wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. They wanted, let me say that again. They wanted the credit and the prestige, the reputation for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their ego. It's a good insight, I think. So their sin is pride. It's it's hypocrisy. It's lying for the sake of looking good in the eyes of other people. And the great danger is that when we seek to deceive others in that way, we can begin to believe that we're also able to deceive God. We think we can lie to the Holy Spirit and get away with it. Hypocrisy is a dangerous sin. That certainly was not the case for Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't able to get away with it, were they? Within a matter of three hours, they are struck down. The way it reads to me, if I were to envision this, it's that Ananias falls down. These young men come, wrap him up, carry him out, go out and bury him. And once that task is done, which would take a little bit, maybe three hours, they walk back to the threshold, and right when they get there, Sapphira has just died as well, and they take her out. Which makes me say, why was the punishment so severe? Why was that punishment so severe for what they did? I I think we might respond to to this sin the way that some of us, when we were doing our Fellowship of the Word in First and Second Samuel, when we came to Second Samuel 6, and Uzzah 
reached out and went to steady the ark so that it wouldn't fall down in the mud, and God struck him dead in that moment. And we all kind of said, why was that so severe in that moment? It seems extreme. This feels extreme. Why this harsh punishment? I don't fully know, but I'll give you two factors that help me to try to understand it. The first was that their sin was against the Spirit. That's emphasized twice, isn't it? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you conspired together to test the Spirit. This is a a sin that is directly against the Spirit. Of course, all sin is against God, but in some unique way, they are sinning against God's Spirit. It reminds me of the blasphemy of the Spirit. Maybe that's part of what's happening here, though I I wouldn't go as far as to connect them directly. But the other thing that, the other factor is that I think the church is vulnerable. The, The church needs to understand that this kind of hypocrisy will not be tolerated. And so early on here in the church, there is a, an example made, as it were. There is a situation where God says, I take this stuff very seriously. And so the church is in a vulnerable place, and this sin is against the Spirit, and that's why the punishment is is so great. But I invite you to, to talk with me about it more. But then in response to that, I would say, how did this event affect the early church? This is significant. Can you imagine this happening in our assembly, that someone brings a gift and says, I sold my house, and here's all the money. And the person is then struck down dead because they didn't give all of it. That would be a unique thing happening within the church. And how would that affect them? We're told twice that that fear came upon everyone, both inside and outside the church. That seems to be where the text is driving. You see it um, there in verse 5, great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things said twice. That seems to be the response. The, the church is still marked by grace, but they're also reminded that God is a, a holy God who calls people to total devotion and transparent honesty. This moment reminded me in some way of John 6. Do you remember John 6 where the people are flocking to Jesus, asking for more signs? They've just been fed bread, and now they come and they want him to do more. And In particular, they want more food. But instead, Jesus gives them a hard teaching, and he says that he is the true bread. And I can't help but wonder if what's going on in the early church is that some people are coming into the church simply for the fringe benefits of it. Well, they're pulling all the resources, and they're getting lots of good things, so maybe we should go be a part of that, and we'll get some of the benefits of what's going on there. They're there for the food. They're there for the kindness. They're there for the love. And that's not a bad way for someone to come into the church. But when they realize that there's also a call to integrity, There's a call to holiness. There's a call to transparency before God and before one another, that this community is not just about pooling our resources, but this community is about devotion to God in Christ. Then maybe there's a little bit of fear that comes into their heart, and they say, you know what? I don't think this is for me. They're forced to count the cost. They're forced to say, is this really just is this just some sort of social club or is this about truly following Jesus and being a part of God's people 
Ananias and Sapphira, and I think this this whole text teaches that there's no room for play acting amongst the people of God. And if we want to be a church that's filled with power like the early church knew, then we have to come with open hands and honest hearts, and we have to be willing to deal with deception and hypocrisy among us. We can't come into this place trying to make a name for ourselves. We can't come in here acting as if we're more devoted than we really are. We can't come in here looking out only for ourselves and trying to deceive others into thinking that we are better than we are, that we're making more sacrifices than they are, we're making bigger sacrifices than we really are. And so there's a call here, I think, to devotion, total devotion to God's people, but also transparent honesty. It's a devotion that costs us something. And it's an honesty that admits failure and pursues integrity. I don't think that the response to this then is to say, well, let's have another offering and see if you gave everything that you were supposed to today. You know, I, I don't think that that's what we're supposed to do. It's less about the money, really. And that's where I don't think greed and covetousness is at the core. But it's rather... Are we a place where we can be open and honest with one another in every way? Are we a place where everything is on the table? Are we hedging our bets a little bit? Are we holding some stuff back? Are we not fully committed in the way that we could be? And within that, are we trying to look like we are when we aren't? Now, there's a call to devotion and honesty, but also remember that you and I will never achieve that on our own. Remember, our hope is not in what we can do, but our hope is in the fact that Jesus is the one who gave all that he had in service to the Father. Our hope is in Jesus. It's not in how much we can give. You can't earn your salvation by going and selling your house and laying it down in front of the church. But Jesus has done it, and he calls us to admit our own hypocrisy, to admit our poverty of spirit, to admit that we cannot do it on our own so that we can be saved through faith and faith alone in his work on our behalf, in his sacrificial death, in his flawless life. He is the one who saves. And as his redeemed people now through his power, through his spirit, we follow in his footsteps with awe and reverence of who God is, but also covered continually by his grace so that we would give freely. As God's people, we must continually seek total devotion to and transparent honesty with God but also with one another and it's there that we will find power and strength as a church power and strength to honor God to glorify God even in the midst of our weakness